Chapter 15 of the Marquise de Villemer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Kempton. The Marquise de Villemer by Georges Sand. Translated by Ralph Keeler. Chapter 15. One morning, the Marquise, writing at the large table in the library, while Caroline, at the other end, was turning over some maps, laid down his pen and said to her with emotion, Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais, I remember that you have sometimes expressed a good-natured wish to know about this work of mine, and I thought I could never make up my mind to satisfy you. But now, yes, now I feel that submitting it to you will give me pleasure. This book is your work much more than it is mine, after all, because I did not believe in it, and you have led me to respect the impulse which prompted it. By restoring my faith in my task, you have enabled me to carry it further in one month than I had done for ten years before. You are also the cause why I shall certainly finish a thing which I should, perhaps, have been always recommencing until my last hour. Besides, it was near at hand this last hour, I felt it coming quickly, and I hastened, the prey of despair, for I could see nothing advancing but the close of my life. You ordered me to live, and I have lived, to be calm, and I am at peace, to believe in God, and in myself, and I do so believe. Since I now have faith in my thought, you must also give me faith in my power to express it, for although I do not hold to style, more than is reasonable, Yet I consider it necessary to give weight and attractiveness to truth. Here, my friend, read. Yes, replied Caroline, eagerly. You see that I do not hesitate, that I do not refuse, and this is neither prudent nor modest on my part. Very well, I am not disturbed by that. I am so sure of your talent that I stand in no fear of the fact that I shall have to be sincere, and I believe so thoroughly in the harmony of our opinions that I even flatter myself I shall comprehend what, under other circumstances, would be beyond my reach. But as she was about to take the manuscript, Caroline hesitated before accepting so especial a mark of confidence, and inquired whether the excellent Duke was not also to be a sharer in this gratification. No, replied the Marquise. My brother will not come today. I have seized upon a time when he is away hunting. I do not wish him to know about my work before it is finished. He would not comprehend it. His hereditary prejudices would stand in the way. To be sure, he thinks he has a few advanced ideas, as he calls them, and he knows that I go farther than he, but he does not suspect how far I have strayed from the road in which my education placed me. My rebellion against these things of the past would put him in consternation, and this might disturb me before the close of my work. But you yourself, perhaps you are going to be a little uneasy? I have reached no decision myself, replied Caroline, and very probably I shall adopt your opinions when I understand them exactly. Sit down now, I will read aloud for your benefit as well as my own. I want you to hear yourself speak. I think this must be a good way of rereading one's work. Caroline read that morning a half-volume, resuming the employment the next day and the day after. In three days she had made the Marquise listen to a summary of his studies for many years. 
She followed his handwriting as easily as print, although it was somewhat blind, and as she read aloud, with admirable clearness, intelligence and simplicity, growing animated and conscious of her own emotion, when the narration rose to the lyric passages, in the epic construction of the history, the author felt himself enlightened at once by a very sun of certainty, formed of all the scattered rays by which his meditations had been penetrated. The picture was fine, of beautiful originality, bearing the stamp of real greatness. Under the simple and mysterious heading, The History of Titles, he raised a whole series of bold questions, which aimed at nothing less than rendering universal, without restrictions and forever, the thought of the revolutionary night, August the 4th, 1789. This son of a noble house with ancient privileges, brought up in the pride of family and in the disdain of commoners, introduced before our modern civilization a written accusation of the nobility, along with documents to sustain his case, the proofs of their usurpations, their outrages or their crimes, and pronounced sentence of forfeiture against them in the name of logic and justice, in the name of the human conscience, and more than all, in the name of simple scriptural Christianity. He boldly attacked the compromise of eighteen centuries, which would ally the equality revealed by the apostles to the arrangements of civil and theocratical hierarchies, admitting in all classes none but political and executive hierarchies, that is to say official positions, held as proofs of personal courage and social activity, or, in a word, of any real services rendered, he pursued the privilege of birth as far as into the present state of public opinion, and even as far as its final influences, tracing with a firm hand the history of the spoliations and usurpations of power from the creation of the feudal nobility down to the present time. It was reconstructing the history of France from a special point of view, under the sway of one idea, a distinct, absolute, inflexible, indignant idea, springing from that religious feeling which aristocracy cannot attack, without itself committing suicide, invoking as it does the divine right for the support of its own institution. We will say no more about the data of this book, even a criticism of which would be foreign to our subject. Whatever judgment might be passed on the convictions of the author, it was impossible not to recognise in him a splendid talent, joined to the knowledge and strong good faith which mark a mind of the first rank. His style especially was magnificent, of a copiousness and richness which the modest brevity of the Marquis in social life would never have led one to suspect, though even in his book he gave small space to discussions. After having stated his premises, and the motives of his investigation in a few pages of warm and severe criticism, he passed on with eloquent clearness to the facts themselves, and classified them historically. His narrations, teeming as they did with colour, had the interest of a drama or a romance, even when, rummaging among obscure family archives, he revealed the horrors of feudal times, with the sufferings and degradations of the lower classes. An enthusiast, but making no apologies for the fact, he deeply felt all offences against justice, against modesty, against love, and in many pages his soul, in its passion for truth, justice and beauty, would reveal itself entirely in bursts of excited eloquence. More than once Caroline felt the tears come to her eyes, 
and laid aside the book to recover her composure. Caroline made no objections. It is not for the simple narrator to say that she should have made them, or that there were really none to make. It is necessary to relate merely that she found no objections to offer. So great was her admiration of his ability and her esteem for the man himself. The Marquise de Villemere became in her eyes a person so completely superior to all she had ever met, that she then and there formed the purpose of devoting herself to him, unreservedly and for her whole life. When we say unreservedly, we are mindful that there was certainly one exception which would not have been agreed to thus, had it presented itself to her mind. But it did not present itself. In such a man there was nothing to disturb the serenity of her enthusiasm. And yet we should not dare to affirm that from this time onward her enthusiasm did not unconsciously include love as one of the elements indispensable to its fullness. But love had not been its point of departure. The Marquise had never until now revealed all the attractiveness of his intellect or of his person. He had been constrained, agitated and out of health. Caroline did not, at first, perceive the change in him that was taking place in such a gradual way, for he grew eloquent, young and handsome, day by day and hour by hour, recovering his health, his confidence in himself, the certainty of his own power, and the charm happiness gives to a noble face which has been veiled by doubt. When she began to account for all these delightful transformations, she had already felt their effects without her own knowledge, and the autumn had come. They were about returning to Paris, and Madame de Villemer, under the sway of a fixed idea, would say every day to her young companion, in three weeks, in a fortnight, in a week, the famous interview of my son with Mademoiselle de Zentraille will take place. Caroline then felt a fearful anguish in the depths of her heart, a consternation, a terror, and an overmastering revelation of a kind of attachment which she did not yet confess even to herself. She had so fully accepted the vague and still distant prospect of this marriage that she had never been willing to ask herself whether it would give her pain. It was for her a thing inevitable, like old age or death, but one does not really accept old age or death until either arrives, and Caroline felt that she was growing weak, and that she should die at the thought of this absolute separation so near at hand. She had ended by believing with the Marchioness that the scheme could not fail. She had never dared to question the Marquise. Besides, the Duke had forbidden this in the name of the friendship she felt for the family. According to him, the Marquise would never come to a decision as long as he was tormented about it, and the Duke well knew that the least anxiety on Caroline's part would overthrow all his brother's designs. The Duke, after having sincerely admired the purity of their relations, began to grow anxious about it. This is becoming, said he to himself, an attachment so serious that one cannot foresee its results. Shall we believe that his tender respect for her has killed his love, no, no, such respect in a case like this is love with redoubled power. The Duke was not mistaken. The Marquise was not at all concerned at the prospect of a marriage which he had now determined not to contract. He was only troubled about the change which a residence in Paris would for a time effect in his relations with Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais, in their free intimacy, in their common studies, in that continuous security which could not be found elsewhere. 
He mentioned this to her with great sadness. She felt the same regret, and attributed her own inward sorrow to her love for the country and to the breaking up of a life so sweet and noble. She, however, experienced a charming surprise on her arrival in Paris. She found her sister there awaiting her with the children, and learned that Camille was going to be near her. She was to live at Etampes, in a little house, half-city and half-country residence, pretty, new, in a good atmosphere, with the enjoyment besides of a considerable garden. She would be only an hour's ride by rail from Paris. She had placed Lily at school, having obtained a scholarship for her in a Parisian convent. Caroline would be able to see her every week. Finally, a scholarship had also been promised her for little Charles, in a college when he should be old enough to enter. "'You fill me with surprise and delight,' cried Caroline, embracing her sister. "'But who has worked all these miracles?' "'You,' replied Camille. "'You alone. It is always you.' "'No, indeed. I had hopes of obtaining these scholarships, "'that is, of procuring them some day or other through Léonie, "'who is so obliging, but I did not hope for such prompt success.' "'Oh, no,' replied Madame Audebert. "'This did not come from Léonie. It came from someone here.' impossible. I have never said a word about it to the Marchioness. Knowing how much she is at variance with the powers that be, I should not have dared. Someone has dared to approach the Ministry, and this someone, he does not wish to be named, he has acted in secrecy, and yet I shall betray him because it is impossible for me to keep a secret from you. This someone is the Marquise de Villemere. Ah, then you wrote to ask him. Not at all. It was he who wrote to me, inquiring about my situation and my claims with a kindness, a propriety, a delicacy. Yes, Caroline, you were quite right in esteeming a character like his. But stop, I have brought his letters. I wish you would read them. Caroline read the letters and saw that, beginning from the day when she had taken care of Monsieur de Villemere, he had been bestowing attentions upon her family with a lively and constant interest. He had anticipated her secret wishes. He had concerned himself about the education of the children. He had taken prompt and sure measures by letter, without even offering to take them, confining himself to asking Camille for the necessary information as to the services of her husband in his department. He had announced his success, refusing to be thanked, and saying that his debt of gratitude to Mademoiselle de Saint-Genet was far from being paid. This good news had reached Camille during the slow journey with post-horses which Caroline was taking with the Marchioness, for the old lady had a fear and horror of coaches and railways. As to the house at Etampes, this was also the idea and proposition of the Marquise. There was, he said, a little estate, bringing in nothing, which had been left him by an aged relative, and he begged Madame Herdebert to do him the favour of living there. She had accepted this offer, saying that she would take upon herself all the expenses of repairs, but she had found the little house in excellent condition, furnished and even provided with fuel, wine and vegetables for more than a year. When she inquired about the rent of the person charged by the Marquise with these details, he replied that his orders were to receive no money, that it was too slight a matter, and that the Marquise had never proposed to rent the house of his aged cousin to strangers. Though Caroline was deeply moved by these favours from her friend, and pleased to see the lot of her family so much improved, 
She felt, nevertheless, a sorrow at heart. It seemed as if this was a kind of farewell from him whose life was to be parted forever from her own, and, as it were, an account settled by his gratitude. She drove back this sorrow, however, and passed her mornings for several days in walking out with her sister and the children, in buying the outfit of the little schoolgirl, and finally in establishing her at the convent. The marchioness wished to see Madame Erdebert, and the pretty Elisabeth, who was going to lose at the convent her soft pet name of Lily. She was pleasant to Caroline's sister, and did not let the child depart without a pretty present. She wished to give Caroline two days of freedom with her family, so that she might have ample time to bid them good-bye, and conduct them to the station again. She even rode herself to the convent to recommend Elisabeth Odebert as under her special protection. Camille had also seen the Marquise and the Duke at their mother's. She had only ventured to present Lily to her benefactor, the other children not being old enough. But Monsieur de Villemer wanted to see them all. He went to call upon Madame Odebert at the hotel where she had taken lodgings, and found Caroline in the midst of the children, by whom she was almost worshipped. She found him, for his part, not in a reverie, but apparently absorbed in the contemplation of the cares and caresses she gave them. He looked at each child with tender attention, and spoke to them all, like a man in whom the paternal sentiment is already well developed. Caroline, ignorant that he really was a father, imagined with a sigh that he was thinking of future family joys. The following day, after she had seen her sister safely in the railway carriage which was to carry her back to Etampes, Caroline felt herself horribly alone, and, for the first time, the marriage of the Marquise presented itself to her mind as an irreparable disaster in her own life. She left the platform quickly to hide her tears, but in the court she came directly upon Monsieur de Villemere. "'What?' he said, offering her his arm. "'You are weeping.' That is just what I was expecting, and I was anxious to come to this place, where pretexts for the public are not wanting, to sustain you a little in this sorrow which is so natural, and to remind you that you still have sincere friends here. What, did you come here on my account? replied Caroline, wiping away her tears. I am ashamed of this momentary weakness. It is ingratitude to you who have loaded my relatives with favours, who have established them near me, and whom I ought to bless with joy instead of feeling the slight pain of a separation which cannot last very long. My sister will often return to see her daughter, and I shall see her myself oftener still. No, no, I have no cause for grief. On the contrary, I am very happy, thanks to you for it. Then why do you still weep? said the Marquise, as he led her back to the carriage he had brought for her. Come, you are a little nervous, are you not? But it troubles me. Let us go back to the platform, as if we were in search of someone. I shall not leave you in tears. It is the first time I have seen you weeping, and it hurts me. Stop. We are only a few steps from the Jardin des Plantes. At eight in the morning there is no risk of meeting anyone we know. Besides, with that mantle and veil, no one will recognise you. It is pleasant enough. Will you come and look at the Swiss Valley? We will try to imagine ourselves in the country again. And when I leave you, I shall be sure, at least, I hope, that you will not be ill. There was so much friendly solicitude in the tone of the Marquise, that Caroline did not think of refusing his offer. Who knows, thought she, that he does not wish to bid me a brotherly adieu before entering his new existence. It is indeed a thing which is allowable for us to do, which perhaps we ought to do, 
He has never yet spoken to me of his marriage. It would be strange if he did not speak to me about it, and if I were not prepared and willing to hear him. End of chapter 15